Um, very thankful for today, very thankful for you guys. Uh, for, for me, just to be able to take a little break to get ready for Easter this week, I've been trying to spend some time on Good Friday and Easter. Uh, I have a, a friend who loves Jesus dearly, who loves God's word, and uh, he goes here, he loves you guys, and his name is Brandon, and he's going to come on up and bring the word today. So Brandon, come on up, man. And would you guys just give Brandon uh, a friendly, warm welcome as he preaches? I have a whole laptop here, so forgive me for that, but... Man, so Josiah basically said, um, I want you to talk about Omni. And I was like, what do you mean? Is that like a new COVID variant? Is that an orientation I'm unaware of? Is that a, I don't know, like a, a new e-commerce brand? Like Omni, I don't know. I didn't know what it And he's like, no, I'm talking about the sermon. I want you to preach on Omni. I'm like, oh, okay. So do you guys know like what, just from that Omni, like what I'm talking about? Luch, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, so it, it means all. Omni means all. And the three kind of big omni traits of God that get talked about is his omnipresence, his omniscience, and his omnipotence, which means in that order, omnipresence, God is everywhere. He's present everywhere. Omniscience, he knows everything. And omnipotent, he's all powerful. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, as opposed to the other things that I thought we were going to talk about. This is much better, much better, much better. So um, I, I started to kind of prepare for this and study for this, and I was doing it very much academically. And then I was praying through it, and God was basically like, you really need to receive something in order for you to be able to give something. And so I have to say, um, I've been so blessed myself personally just by looking at who God is according to scripture. It is so, like, sometimes, like, I, I could rattle off these three words very easily. It's like, oh, omniscient, present, da, da, da. Like, I've heard that a bunch of times. I grew up in a Christian, like, high school. But really looking at who God is in depth according to his scripture is so rich. And so I hope that you guys, I hope I'm able to give some of what I feel like I've received to you guys today. And so, um, the other thing I wanted to mention just by way of opening is that God um, doesn't change. And I'm kind of stealing next week's thunder a little bit here. But as we read through all of these scriptures that we're going to go through today, just have in the front of your mind, it's still true about him today. It's true about him for me. It's not something for ancient Israel. It's not something for the first century church. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so all of these truths are still just as real and just as for you, for every one of us today, as they ever have been. Um, there's something about, again, like I said, kind of growing up in church. I have no idea who exactly my audience is here, but there's something about growing up in church where you hear these things. It's kind of familiar. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a story. Um, Claudio, one of my friends here, Claudio, go ahead and raise your hand. <laughs> Um, he went on a hike in Hawaii on this thing called the Kaolau Trail. And I think you guys did 24 miles in a day. So it's a tw he hiked 24 miles in one day. And um, at the end of that day, um, they got to a beach, which is this like beautiful, remote paradise. And I remember, Clyde, I remember you describing that it was, so much, it was so sweet because of the journey. Like the effort that it took to get there made the destination that much more enjoyable, that much more sweet. 
and then didn't you say like some people just came by boat and just got straight to that beach without any effort? And you're like, you're not, this isn't the same thing. Like we worked so, we, we, we strove to get here all day and you guys just like helicoptered in, like no, no fear. But sometimes I feel like we kind of helicoptered into these deep, rich truths of scripture um, by the fact that we're like raised in a Christian family. And like, we don't realize like the blood, sweat and tears that has gone into getting us to be able to access the good things of God. So, um, I kind of want to walk through that journey a little bit today rather than just taking things for granted. Let's really look at who God is. And the last lyrics of the worship song there, like I want to delve back into that worship that was going on that was so sweet. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. And so let's do it. First of all, omnipresence. I'm going to look at this from a couple different angles. So the first aspect of this omnipresence is God is present everywhere. God's everywhere present. He's present in every place at every point. He's a spirit being. He's not limited by space or time, which is very abstract, very hard to understand because we're not that way. We all have a body. So the idea of being everywhere at once is very weird and abstract. But it's really, really good that God is this way, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at why that's the case now. And in order to do that, let's first go to Psalm 139. And I need to pull it up on my phone. I'm sure you, oh, you guys already pulled it up because your size is on top of it. So give me a second to get up to speed here. Psalm 139. I should have, t- where's, uh, I should have taken up um, the offer. to to receive a Bible when it was given to me. (laughs) Oh, you got it? Hey. Thanks, man. Now, I will say, what's that? I don't don't do that. No, just kidding. Okay, Psalm 139. And there is one part of this, too, as as kind of a parenthetical. I'm going to read it, but just to make sense of it, it's kind of, the whole thing is, is, about one thing, except for this one little part where he's all of a sudden like, but my enemies. And then he like almost catches himself. He's like, no, 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 but God, but God. And he goes back to you. It's, it's kind of funny. But let's go into it right here. So Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in the utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You, you saw me before I was born. 
Every day my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Here's the funny part, the kind of funny part. Get out of my life, you murderers. They, they blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. Oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those people who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That psalm really contains all three, but I wanted to read it off the top just because it's so, it's so rich, and it really demonstrates a key point that I want to highlight with all of these, all of what we're going to look at today, which is that God wields his attributes for our good. And he doesn't have to. All of these things, if possessed by anybody other than God, would be really, really bad for us. I can't think of anybody else who I would want to be everywhere, who I would want to know everything, who I'd want to have all power. Anybody but the Lord possessing these attributes would, would make hell of earth, basically. It would, be, it would be horrifying and scary. But because the Lord is the Lord, and he's the one who possesses these traits, he wields them for our good in beautiful, amazing ways. So that's what we're going to go into. So let me not get ahead of myself. Number two. So first we said God is present everywhere. Number two, God is in the heights. So God is in the heights. Heaven means heights. Heavens is plural for heaven, which means the heights of the heights. So that means that is biblical language describing God's exalted nature. He's in the heights, meaning he's high and lifted up. He's lofty. He's worthy of praise. Psalm 97 verse 9 says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. When John goes to the island of Patmos and has the revelation that is translated into the book of Revelations, the first thing that he sees is not the kind of ideas that might come to, to our, you know, Western imagination when we talk about heaven, the streets of gold, you know, cherubim on the clouds. Like, we have these ideas from basically medieval artwork that we think about when we think about heaven, but that's not what John actually saw first. In Revelation 4, verse 1, the first thing that he sees is a throne, and one sitting on the throne. Everything finds itself in the whole cosmos in relationship to that throne. And the message to the early church, the persecuted early church, was crystal clear. Don't worry. There's one sitting on the throne. He's the Caesar of Caesars. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. And he is in control. Even though you're being crushed and downtrodden, and even though you're, you're literally being martyred for his name, he is still on the throne. He is in control. So he is God in the heights. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says, I dwell in a high and holy place. And even the ancient people kind of understood this concept like pre-New Testament, like way back at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was this attempt to get to God, right? They're building a thing upward. We're getting up to God because God is in the heights. God is in heaven. We're going to build Babel to get there. And um, it's funny because in Genesis eleven five, it says, and the Lord came down to see what was going on at the Tower of Babel. And it's funny because it's like from his perspective, it's probably like a grain of sand. And he's like looking down at this attempt and he's coming down to see it, um, which I just think is funny. Number three, God is near. So we've said God is present everywhere. God is in the heights. God is near. 
And this is the best of both worlds because what this means is that that high and lifted up God on the throne, God of the cosmos, the grand exalted Christ is also very near in times of trouble. It's by far the best of both worlds. It means that he's ruling and reigning, but he's also with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's also with us in the trenches. He's also with us in the lion's den. He's with us in the fiery furnace. There was four there, right? It was Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the Lord. And that is how, that is, that is how we're blessed by God's omnipresence. We're blessed by his omnipresence in that he can be with us wherever we're at. And he's willing to do so. He wields his nature for our good. Deuteronomy 4.39 says, He is God in heaven and, uh, I'm sorry, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see the same thing reflected in Christ when he first comes um, back from being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and he walks into the synagogue, and he opens up the scroll, and he basically gives his mission statement, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, to set captives free. You see, God's heart for people is that he wants to get into our weak places. He wants to get into our brokenness. He wants to use his omnipresence to get into the places that we most need him to get into, which is all of the bad parts about us. He's not afraid of any of those shadows. That's what his mission is all about, is getting access to all of the real estate of our hearts, that we would be fully shaped into the image of his son. That's what he is in the business of doing. And his, so his presence, his omnipresence is actually also, God is, is, is aiming at occupying all of us with his spirit. Every part of our hearts that are dark, every part of you know, the real estate inside of us that he doesn't have, that's where he's aiming at. That's where he's coming. Also, the Great Commission, as he leaves, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age which means that as we go and do everything, God is with us. As we're at work, God is with us. When we're at home, God is with us. And all of our comings and goings, he's actually there. It's not just wish fulfillment. It's not just, you know, something that we can think about to feel less lonely. It's very real. God is actually with us at all times. He says, in Hebrews 13, 5, he says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And he's close. God is closer to us, the more that we need him. That's, that's one thing that if you look at scriptures, you see that the greater the need, the more that God leans in. Jeremiah 23, 23 says, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Ephesians 4, 6 says, the God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all. So you see through those prepositions, the all-encompassing nature of God. Um, four, so, uh, so we've looked at God is present everywhere. God is in the heights. God is near. And now God is in the depths. And you think of anywhere that we can possibly go to run away from God. You think of Jonah. 
You think of Adam and Eve in the garden hiding. They sin and they hide. And God comes into the garden. Where are you, Adam? God's with us in the depths. God sees everywhere that we're trying to run away to, trying to run either towards something that's not good for us, which is basically sin, or away from things that are good for us, like mission or responsibility. So like um, Jonah would be an example of I'm running away from something that I don't want to do. And then Adam and Eve is more like I'm, I'm, you know, running towards something that I shouldn't, the forbidden fruit of life that we all experience both of those at all times. I don't want to do this even though I should, and I shouldn't do that, but I, for some reason, want to do that. And wherever we're running, that's not good, whether away from or toward, God is, God is with us. He's in the depths. Okay, omniscient. So same thing, we're going to look at this from a couple different angles too. God has perfect self-knowledge. That's the first thing. Perfect self-knowledge. John 10, 15. The Father knows me and I know the Father. The perfect harmony and unity in that verse, you see within the Trinity, there's perfect internal knowledge of God to God to God to God. Even like earthly relationships, even marriages, sometimes the communication breaks down and it's like, oh, I thought on Friday night we were doing that. I thought we were doing that. Oh, you know, you're, you're trying to be in unity as much as you can, but there's a communication breakdown. There's a, there's a knowledge problem that exists in basically any earthly relationship, but there's no knowledge problem that exists within the divine relationship. The Trinity has perfect intimacy, harmony, and unity within itself. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, The thoughts of God no I'm sorry, I can't read right now. The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So that's the second point, is nobody else has that knowledge. So God has this perfect self-knowledge that, like, we're all getting up to speed as best we can, but he already knows it all perfectly. So number two, God has perfect knowledge of everything outside himself. Job thirty-seven fifteen says, listen to this, O Job, and this is great because this is in the context of Job kind of wrestling through the really hard things that are happening to him and kind of having that battle with God of, it's a battle of the will, really. And at one point, this is, what, this is what God says to Job. He says, listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. Do you know how God establishes them and makes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one in perfect knowledge, whose garments are hot when the land is still because of the south wind, can you with him spread out the skies strong as a molten mirror? I love that poetic language too. But he's saying, I'm perfect in knowledge, Job. Like, why are you questioning me? You, don't, you know so little and I know everything. Trust me, I'm perfect in knowledge. And again, God doesn't change. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in whatever you, our Job-like situations are that are full of suffering and this doesn't make sense and why did this happen to me, and we kind of, like, that same rebellion flares up in our heart where we're like, ah, oh, I don't think this isn't right. I don't understand this. The same answer comes from God. I am perfect in knowledge. I know what I'm doing. I know what's best for you. Trust me. I'm going to work all things together for your good. You just have to hold out your hand, let me grab it, and let's do this thing together. Why would we not turn to God at all the t- and, and all times when we know that he has perfect knowledge of past, present, and future and we're going to get to the, I will spoiler alert on the last one, but he's also all good. That's, that's the big enchilada is he's all good. So that infuses through, through these other things, and that's what makes them, him use them for our good. Okay, how am I doing on time? 
Good. <laughs> Psalm 147.5, his understandings are limitless. Um, I don't think I put that one in the PowerPoint, but still good. First John 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, this is cool. I was looking into this, and light is basically a metaphor in that kind of original audience for knowledge. So saying God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all is saying like God can see everything through his light, through his knowledge. He has total knowledge. In him, there's no darkness. In him, there's no deprivation of knowledge. It's a beautiful poetic way of getting at the same idea. Okay, so we looked at one, God has perfect self-knowledge. Two, God has perfect knowledge of everything outside himself. Now, three, God has eternal knowledge. And what that means is that he has known all that he knows since forever. That means that God's never calculating or like figuring something out or learning which is weird to think about. God's never learning anything. God knows everything that he knows and has known it since forever, including the cross that, must, that had to come. It says that Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. So, he, he, it, so that's, that, that's why scripture, get, scripture gets so amazing when you realize that God has this epic story that he's unfolding, and we're all a part of it. And it's leading to the most beautiful possible outcome. And yes, it includes a cross, which is the ultimate suffering and death. And, and it also includes the requirement that each of us take up our own cross, that each of us actually die to ourselves, that we might experience true life in God. It does include that part. God's story does include us laying down our lives to him, us submitting our flesh and our will under him and saying, you are the Lord, not I. Have your way with, with me, God. You direct my life. But when we do that, it's only ever for our good. God does not arbitrarily ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. God does not want to just make life hard for us. Christianity is not about preventing you from having fun or preventing you from being free in some way or, or anything like that. Christianity is about total freedom and total liberation. And, and it, it's tricky, though, because you do have to go low to be exalted. The Lord exalts the humble. And, and, and so there is a real death to self that's required in order to be able to connect to God. That's really like the one thing. It's like it's easier for a rich person to enter into the, the eye of an, a needle. I'm sorry, easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it's that idea of pride. And I think that that's the big barrier for all of us. Like we all have some sense of self-actualization of I'm really not that bad. I've got this figured out. I only fall into that sin once a month at this point. I'm basically, you know, Right? Like, we all have those things that, that, we, that we feel like we kind of got it under control. And the, the basically one big ask from God to us is humble yourself on the side of the Lord. Repent. Look in the mirror and realize that you don't have what it takes, that you actually need me. But then through me, you can do all things. Through me. And that's the whole thing is he wants that relationship with us. He wants to walk through life with us. Where am I at? God has eternal knowledge. Did we already do that one? Yeah, we did. Okay. So, so, so we've done, God has perfect self-knowledge. God has perfect knowledge of everything outside of himself. God has eternal knowledge, which means that he's known everything since forever. And now four, God has immediate knowledge. So um, what this means is that um, he doesn't know some things better than others. Um, everything that he knows, he knows perfectly and immediately. And so um, we're going to go to Romans eleven thirty three through 36 for this. 
and it says, oh, the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Also in Isaiah 14, sorry, 40, 13, it says, Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Rhetorical question? Answer? Nobody. Number five, God has exhaustive knowledge. That means he knows everything down to the smallest details. That means although he has this sort of vast knowledge of having um, numbered the stars, which it says in Scripture, God has numbered the stars, which is crazy to think about. Stars don't repopulate or you know, procreate. Stars are a fixed number, and there's trillions of them. And God knows the exact number. There's a precisely a certain number of stars, and God, God knows what it is. He also knows, so that's the most grandiose and vast, he also knows the number of hairs on our head, Scripture says which for me is becoming less and less impressive, but still, you know, that's, that's still something. It says that not even a sparrow falls apart from the Lord's knowledge. In different places all throughout Scripture, it says his eye is on the sparrow. He's watching everything. In Matthew 6, and this is so good because this gets really practical. Actually, before we read this, one thing I wanted to say is these things can kind of feel abstract, but... I hope you guys are seeing how these are so practical. Like understanding who God is rightly is so practical. It, 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 it will, it's basically the most important thing about who we are is our understanding of who God actually is because the things that prevent our life from being all that God wants it to be is actually just the extent to which that we're in some sort of an illusion. We're thinking about ourselves in the wrong light or we have bad ideas about who God is and that works like a lens over our vision that has murkiness on it and smears on it. We can't see through this illusion to reality. So it's important to understand who God really is according to scripture because it's the most practical possible thing that you can do because it just wipes that lens of perception clear and you can actually see God rightly through the lens of scripture. And then his light shines back now more perfectly through that, dim, that glass dimly. Like Paul says, we see through a glass dimly, and it's true that we do. But the more that we understand God and we wash our minds in his scripture, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so the right, having correct ideas about God and knowing who he really is according to how he's revealed himself in scripture is the most practical thing you can possibly do. So, and one example of that would be this passage in Matthew 6, where it says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your Father in heaven feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Have you not seen the flowers that grow in the field? They do not labor or spin, Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Proverbs 5.21 says, For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. 
Psalm 147.4 says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. I already talked about that one, but there's the reference for it, so you know I didn't make it up. Number six, actually, let's backtrack really quick, just, in, just to recap this. So we, we've talked about, so the category that we're in right now is God is omniscient. We've said that he has perfect self-knowledge, um, knowledge of everything outside of himself, eternal knowledge, immediate knowledge, exhaustive knowledge, and now God's knowledge is penetrating. And here's where I'm going to try not to cry because this part is really, really good. God sees what no one else sees. He sees the masks that we wear. He sees the things done in darkness. He sees the secret places of our hearts. He has searched us and known us. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. He sees the very depths of our fears, our insecurities, our selfishness, all of our sins. And yet he has set his eternal love upon us and it is blazing and it will never be extinguished and many waters shall not drown it out. God has every single opportunity to obliterate us because he has all the knowledge of who we are and he has all the power to be able to do so. And instead, he uses those things to, it's like, I'm thinking of the negative version of this would be Lord of the Rings. If you guys are familiar with Lord of the Rings, like the eye of Sauron, you know, sees all, it penetrates bone from arrow. It's like, that's so scary. We all, like, that's horrible. Or, or like the Orwellian version is like Big Brother. Big Brother's watching you. Big Brother sees everything. This is the worst thing ever unless it's the Lord. But when it's the Lord, he's like, I am seeing down and into the depths of your soul for your good. And there's nothing that I'm scared of. And my love will come after you. And I will never give up on you no matter what. Because when you were my enemy, I died for you. And it was by my stripes that you were healed. That's, that's how I felt too. That's how I felt too. Like understanding this, like this is, this is the Lord. This is, this is the God that we serve. Somehow the God of the universe is Jesus. And we see that what he's like in the life that he lived. And even thinking about Jesus coming from perfection, from the throne of heaven and coming down and all that he did was serve people. And it even says that he came to serve people. He humbled himself as it became a bond servant laid down his life for, for us. It's, it's, it's completely insane according to human logic, but it's, it's the most, it just shows you that he's worthy of praise. Doesn't it just make you want to praise the Lord? Doesn't it just make you want to just say like, you're like, it's amazing that God exists. Imagine a universe without, without this God. Imagine just like a, some power hungry Babylonian iteration of God, you know, he's just there or any of the other idols that Isaiah is constantly comparing the Lord against. You know, he's like, your gods are made of like wood and dust and they don't do anything. They don't have any power. So anyway, I, I just love that. So number six, God's knowledge is penetrating. He looks into the depths of us and he sets his love on us, even though we're in that darkness and even though we don't deserve it. Number seven, God knows the future. This is also really, really good news. So he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's very patient with how he operates because he knows what is best in his foreknowledge. And that's what's so cool is we, I remember um, Tim Keller one time had a sermon and he kind of jokingly was like, he's like probably like 30% of the prayers that I prayed in my 20s 
would have actually been good for me if God had given me what I was asking for. And he's like, now that I'm in my 60s, maybe that number's up to 40%, you know? But it's like such a good point. Like, we think we know what is best for us. We think that if we get what we want, our life will be better. And this idea of God knowing the future completely confounds that. And it's like, you should just take every day on its own and not even think that if I just get there, then I'll be happy. If I can just, you know, do that or get there or date that person or get that job or whatever, then all have arrived. And this whole perspective of God knowing the future and being omnibenevolent, all good and knowing the future is so awesome because it really should just give you that perspective of like, like what Jesus says, every day has enough worries of its own. Just trust in the Lord and just say like, what am I doing today? You know, you, you know my future. Like you guide my steps, lead me down paths of righteousness for your name's sake, lead me into the job that you want me to be, the relationship that you want me to be, just have your way with my life. That like, that is the biblical response to God's foreknowledge, in my opinion, tell me if you agree or disagree, Josiah, and correct me on this, but I'm just, it, 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 it is basically like, is basically like, um, just basically every day asking God, have your way with my life, and trusting that if, but that from that posture, he's going to lead you to the best of all possible outcomes. Okay, uh, third big point, God is omnipotent. Good on time? Cool. Nothing is impossible for God. He is the great overcomer. So we have every reason to lay our petitions on him. El Shaddai is one of the names that God has in Scripture, and it means almighty. So first, God has infinite power. This is really cool, and I think the most dramatic version of our example of this is the power as God's power in creation you know with his breath with his words galaxies are formed let there be light I mean that's just so epic thinking thinking about the power of God in creation also think about um the miracles of Jesus you know he just makes blind eyes to see he cure, he heals the leprosy there. He, I mean, everything that he did was just exerting this insane power that nobody else had. Ultimately, the ability for people to be saved. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens, and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Number two, so one was he has infinite power. Two is he has irresistible power. Job 42.4 says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 43.13 says, yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand, when I act, who can reverse it? So what this means is that it's not like God and the devil are like playing tugging opposites of a tug of war, and like we're in the middle, and it's like all risky. It's like God, God is going to do what He's going to do. The kingdom of heaven wins. It's unshakable. We're promised that in Scripture. God wins the day. And right now it's crazy because it doesn't really feel like it in this world. I love the example that you that Josiah gave of this, of the idea of being between, what is it, VE day and VJ day? The two, you know, in World War II? What is it? 
V E and V, yeah. So it's that idea of like the, the battle's been won, but it like takes some time for these things to like work themselves out. Okay. I did a horrible job explaining that point. Okay. Um, three, he has inexhaustible power. God is not growing tired, God is not growing old. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard the Lord? is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The power of God is inexhaustible, and he gives that power to us. That's the coolest thing. Again, what I'm saying, the, the, the theme here is you'll see God possesses this trait and he's wielding it for our good. He's giving it to us. He's letting us benefit from who he is. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This verse has been misused and twisted and applied in different ways in the prosperity gospel and, and different things. But the word that I have it all caps is Christ, because that's what really the heart of this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ, we can, we can um, do everything. I mean, it, it, we obviously, I can't dunk a basketball anymore. That's not what it's talking about. <laughs> but, it's, but it's saying that we have everything that we need in Christ, that we can endure suffering through Christ. That was really the context. I can persevere in Christ. He gives me the strength to do his good will. He empowers me to do what I need to do. Psalm 102, 25 to 27 says, in the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same. And your years will never end. So the whole universe is like God doing the laundry. You know, the new heavens and the new earth, he's like, they're like a garment that wears out. He'll change them. They'll be discarded. But he remains the same. I love that. Number four, his power is incomprehensible. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Five, his power is self-consistent. That is, it works in perfect coordination with his other attributes. And the reason I brought this one up is that when you start talking about this idea, people are like, well, you know, God can do, can't lift a rock that's too big, that, you know, all these things. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> There's like all these like riddles that are supposed to be logical about how God isn't all-powerful because he cannot do certain things. But really, those are silly, number one. But number two, it's this idea that God works in, in perfect coordination with his other attributes. So God is holy, so therefore God cannot sin, right? Like, so it's not a lack of power that causes God not to be able to sin. It's the fact that God is holy and that God's attributes are symmetrical and perfect. And so God, God's power will always work towards the good, right? God's, it's not like, you know, um, so for example, God cannot lie. The Bible's clear about that. God cannot tempt. God doesn't tempt us. The Bible's clear about that. And, and, and God cannot sin either. Um, pull up that quote from Clive Lewis for a conclusion here. When God is our Holy Father, 
Sovereignty, holiness, omniscience, and immutability do not terrify us. They leave us full of awe and gratitude. And I want to go to Romans chapter 8 here as well. Um, I'll read it and then, yeah. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present or future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this is, this is how I want to um, conclude is just by saying that the work has been done. On our behalf already. God has wielded his attributes, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence for our good. The veil has been torn. We, we have access to these things through Christ. God incarnated himself in the person of Christ. God became a baby in a manger. It's, it's so crazy. It's so crazy that he did this, but he had to do this in order for in order for us to be able to be with him in a way that these things don't work against us. Otherwise, we're getting the all power, boom. We're getting the omnipresence, boom. We're getting the omniscience, boom. And they're not, they're not working toward us in a good way, but only because Christ is standing in the gap for us where he has done what we needed to do but could not. Do we have no reason to fear or looking at this verse right here? Is, is Romans 8 still up there? In my opinion, Christians spend a lot of time condemning themselves. And if you read this, it, it just should bring joy and worship. Because it's like God's already looked at all of who you are and he sent his son to you anyway. So you have nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Life should just be a joyful response, a worshipful response to who God is and to what God has done. Emmanuel means God with us. So God came to earth, walked among us. I have one last thing for you guys. That is looking at the historic church, looking at Christians who have understood at a deep level what I'm trying to unpack today about who God is. If you look at the, the persecution of the church, if you look even now at what people are going through, it's so dramatic compared to what we experience in Florida, in America in 2022. 
And I think in some ways that our lifestyle and uh, the luxury that we have can kind of block us from awareness of certain aspects of the spiritual, of, of life in God. And um, it, it blocks us from the suffering of it too. But I think it also, in some ways, we're missing out on some of the richness that comes through suffering and tribulation and persecution and that like just desperate, like being desperate for God and really needing God to, um, to be there in a, in a time of need. You know, we don't experience a ton of need is my point. But when you look at historic Christianity, you see so many examples of people beginning with Stephen, the first martyr, being stoned to death which is so brutal and crazy to think about. They actually piled up stones around you. They piled up stones around you so that the only thing sticking out was your head. And then the goal was to aim at the head. And you would die when someone would connect. I mean, that's, that is a horrible, horrible way to die. And in that moment, Stephen is there, and his face is shining with glory. Why? Because he's looking up. He has this vision. He's looking up at Jesus. He sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And he, his mindset, he's totally connected with who God is. What's happening in the horizontal, what's happening to his body, he's like, this is, it is, it is what it is. I'm, but I'm totally joyful. His face is, is shining in brilliance in his understanding of who God is and understanding that temporary things end, eternal things last forever. And he's living his life for eternity, for God. He's staying right there connected. And I love that idea that Jesus, it, it's almost like Jesus is like standing up for him. Like, yes, Stephen gets it. Stephen has wiped away that illusion of what life is really about. And he's connected himself to who I am. And as a response to that, he is following in my way and dying to himself, being willing to die for himself. And you see that same thing ripple out for the past 2000 years. You see the disciples in prison singing. I mean, that's just really weird. You know, they're in prison and they're like, let's, let's get together and sing. And so it's this idea of that, the joy that God gives through his attributes is for us. And it basically is the trump card over everything else bad in life. If we understand rightly who God is, it actually, it can like his presence in our life it doesn't matter what happens in our life. It doesn't even matter if we're being stoned. It doesn't matter if we're in prison. It doesn't, being, it doesn't matter what happens to our bodies, what happens to our lives. We have access to a knowledge about who God is that overcomes all of those things and lets us live our life for eternity in spite of whatever happens in the here and now. And the things that we do, the, the big things like what happened with Stephen getting stoned or the smallest things like being kind to people who you don't like, like loving your enemy. Everything that we do in life matters and rings throughout the halls of eternity because God is real. God gives us, meaning exists because God exists. And when we live our life for him and not for ourselves and not for anybody else, when we live our life for God and we see Jesus there at the throne. If we, you know, like, like in Revelation chapter four, when John looked up and the first thing he saw in heaven was the throne of God. When we live our life in connection to who God really is, it gives us meaning every single day. It infuses everything with meaning and joy and purpose. And it's not something that we manifest out of ourselves, but it's, it's what God's presence in us does for us. When, when, when we when the Holy Spirit is inside of us, he points us to Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Is he says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Glorify him. Isn't he worthy? Isn't he worthy? And when we do that, 
the, the illusion is starting to fade and we're seeing reality for what it is. And we're seeing that it's all about God. It's all about eternity. Everything else is just like a, like even our work, our relationships, like everything is sort of this, like, you know, this is a weird example, but like a fishbowl that we're living in. We're playing out the things that matter eternally, spiritually in the day-to-day comings and goings, the trenches of adult life, you know, but it's all about the spiritual aspect of what we're living for. And so for that reason, knowing the attributes of God rightly and setting our attention on God is so important. So I'm going to read the last quote by C.S. Lewis here, which kind of gets to this idea. And he says, we are always falling in love or quarreling, looking for jobs or fearing to lose them, getting ill and recovering, following public affairs, If we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. So that's kind of my call to action is don't waste your life, you know, (laughs) take this stuff seriously and really like, I mean, and and like I said too, this really convicted me too, like in in a huge way, like as I was preparing for this, I was like, oh my gosh, like I, 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 I was convicted, like I need to set my attention more on God and less on the troubles of my day and my week. There's a, there's a parable that set that where one of the things that happens to the seed, which is the word of God going into the soil, which is the human heart, and what happens to that one seed? It was drowned out by the worries, the riches, and the pleasures of the world. So don't be that seed. Be the seed with pure soil. Let this word go in and respond to it. Don't be like what James says of you see the problem in the mirror, and then you kind of go in your way. Like, pray through this after service. Um, I hope that you guys were blessed by it. I'm going to pray now so that the band can come. And actually, we should all together respond to this. So let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you have the power that we need, that you have the strength that we need, that your presence is with us always, that we're never alone. Thank you that you forgive our sins. Thank you that you're not afraid or ashamed of any of us, that your love is pointed toward us no matter what we've done. You promise that you will not give up on us. And I thank you for your never giving up kind of love, God. I thank you that you have created this rescue plan in the first place of coming to us to redeem us, to be with us, God. I thank you that heaven is real. I pray that you would just help us to all see that, to see that heaven's real, to see that life is a vapor, that life is not going to last forever, that it's really, really short, but we will be with you forever, God. So I pray that we would live every day in light of that. You are, you are the Lord. God, tune our hearts to sing your praise, God. And just help us to live in light of who you are, in light of what you've done, God. 
I pray right now that as we worship, that your spirit would fall in this place, God. I pray that you would enthrone yourself upon our praise. There's no one like you, God. We love you, God. Pray these things in Christ's name.